because the multiplier you add is bigger, right? So that's the whole revenue size or size of the business is something to think about. If you are going to sell a business that's pretty small now and you can grow it yourself, you're going to get more of that upside potential. Welcome to the 10K Collective podcast for six, seven and eight figure Amazon and e-commerce sellers, part of the amazing FBA podcast family. If you want to scale fast, target a seven figure exit and enjoy the process, then keep listening. Do you feel you're wasting money you could be keeping in your pocket? Well, many private label Amazon sellers don't even know where they're wasting money, let alone how to stop it. And if that's you, we can help. Our new online assessment helps you identify your biggest Amazon profit killer and what to do about it. For a powerful and quick diagnosis, go to amazonprofitquiz.com. That's amazonprofitquiz.com to get your instant free analysis straight away. Ladles and jelly spoons, boys and girls, welcome to a 10K Collective episode where I'm going to give you my thoughts about profits. And this is kind of part of the profits, protecting profits series, but I'm going to take a new spin, a fresh look at things because until now, we've really been looking through the eyes of an e-commerce operator, owner, manager, specifically, I would call it, which is one way of looking at things. And I know that's the majority of my listeners and of my clients, but today I'm going to talk my own perspective, which is that of somebody who is now moving into the business of acquiring businesses. So I want to talk about what I look for in an e-commerce business. And the first thing to say is this, if you are a business owner, at some point you may wish to be a business seller. You may wish to sell your business. Even if you don't, if you want to get investment, that's a partial sale. In fact, if you think about it, of some of your shares in your business, or you want to sell off a part of the business, or you want to get lends, uh, you want to be lendable, you want to get loans to expand the business, or in fact, you just want to hand it on to somebody else like your grandson in good shape for any of the above reasons, I think that these ways of thinking about things are going to be very, very helpful to you. So let's get started. I mean, the first thing is, this is kind of within the Protect Your Profits mini-series, and that's there for a reason, because it's largely financially driven, what I would look for in a business. And I think for a lot of acquirers, that is true as well. So the first thing is, let's talk about size. Okay, size matters, I'm afraid, gents. So I personally am going to be shopping for businesses between about one and five million pounds, euros or dollars in revenue. But again, much smaller than that, the danger is that I'm buying a job, not a business. Now we'll talk more about that, but that's one sort of major hint. As you go much above that, then you're looking above at a different type of buyer, private equity, famously through aggregators, went down as low as a million pounds or a million dollars uh, revenue sort of size business. They are now, in most cases, the people I'm talking to, that the brokers that, that deal with that, the investment bankers or the aggregators or the private equity money tends to start higher, which if you can build a, a business to the point where it's doing 10 million in, in revenue or more, dollars, pounds, euros, roughly similar, then you have a much more sellable entity on your hands. But that's actually not very common for most people I'm talking to. So if that's you, then one thing to think about is this, the size of a business in absolute terms does matter in terms of the relative value. So first thing to think about, if you, most businesses are 
sold as a multiple of DART or seller discretionary earnings or free cash flow. They all approximate to very, very approximately the same thing. I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole today of how to define those things. Okay. Broadly, pre-tax profit, if you want to be very simple, to get a rough idea of where your business is on this scale. Now, and by the way, there are 20 different, I believe, ways of valuing a business. You could do discounted future cash flows. You want to be clever, but that's not how most of it happens in real life. Okay. And it's, it's easier for you to think about this way. So if you have a business that has about $100,000 or pounds a year of free cash flow, depending on which industry you're in, in any small business, could be worth somewhere between two and four times that SDE or EBITDA. Let's, let's call it free cash flow. Or earnings. Let's use the word earnings. Avoid horrible abbreviations. If you can multiply that, so you just grow the revenue, but more importantly, folks, grow the earnings, right? Profit. Then if you can get that up to, say, 500,000, then you're going to be looking at a higher multiple. Maybe it's four to six times earnings. And, you know, is it seven times earnings because it's on Shopify? Is it four times because Amazon's fashionable? Is it two times because it's a less fashionable physical business like a car wash or something? I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole either, right? It's all relative. But what I want to get across is simple, which is the bigger your earnings, like pre-tax profits, SDE, cash flow, EBITDA, whatever you want to call it, right? So let's, let's just assume that more or less they end up in the same place. The bigger that is, the bigger, not only the, obviously in absolute terms, the, the business is worth, the more the business is worth, I should say, but also it's going to be worth more in relative terms. Which is one reason, of course, why people get into the excited about the roll up or aggregation idea. Cause if you can put a bunch of small businesses together, they're automatically worth more than the sum of their parts because the multiplier you add is bigger, right? So that's the whole revenue size or size of the business is something to think about. If you are going to sell a business that's pretty small now and you can grow it yourself, you're going to get more of that upside potential. If you get a bigger multiple of the earnings. Okay, so that's the whole size of the business thing. Now that brings me to the other question of, of earnings. Now, a couple of things. First of all, let's talk a little bit about the difference between EBITDA, SDE. EBITDA, without going down rabbit holes, is earnings, that is profit, before interest, tax, depreciation, amortization. So in other words, it is basically the uh, very close to the free cash flow of the business. It's not quite the same. Interest is out of the picture because the person buying the business might take on more debt or pay off debts. Tax is a different thing, of course, for different jurisdictions, different people. Depreciation is an interesting one. I'm not quite sure why people take it out of the picture because it kind of ends up being a real cost. But anyway, we won't get down that rabbit hole. So now the difference between that and seller discretionary earnings, I mean, you can argue all day about the meanings of words, but here's the simple, simple thought for you. Uh, a lot of people, including myself, or entities that are buying businesses, are looking for a business that stands alone, that will run more or less by itself. It might not grow spectacularly by itself, but it will run day to day without work. And that means it needs to have management in place. Now, a seller discretionary earnings could include money that the business owner is paying themselves as a dividend, that is, they're counting it as profits. But they are often, I mean, my clients are of, often in this example, they will pay themselves for business doing, say, £800,000 a year. Maybe it's doing £80,000 a year profit or EBITDA or SDE, whatever you want to call it. 
Well, I would call it SDE because the, the pay the seller is paying themselves only about ten thousand pounds in salary and substitute dollars or euros if you're in those zones because same thing, ten thousand in salary. But obviously, that's not a full time wage for a complex job. So, really speaking, if I were to go in and buy that business, I would want to put in a general manager, and you know, depending on who you follow and what you think Glassdoors or whichever website you think is accurate, then actually the, the cost of replacing that person's labor is not going to be zero. It could be, say, £50,000, which means that £80,000 a year seller discretionary earnings or profits, which the seller is choosing to kind of manipulate a bit for understandable tax reasons, I get it, but actually they that would end up being about £30,000 EBITDA, so those earnings before interest tax depreciation amortization. So let me just back off from all these stupid acronyms or, or abbreviations technically and say this. If you are trying to sell a business that requires you to be physically present and you have not accounted for the cost of your labor, somebody somewhere is going to have to account for that. Okay. Now, if you do a, a sale to a trade buyer, I was discussing this with a client of mine the other day. If you sell to a trade buyer, they may plug your business into uh, an existing system and use an existing management personnel. In which case, you could argue, well, they don't need me or, or another person to manage it. Well, yes and no. That's kind of true, but that doesn't mean that your business requires zero management. There is going to be some implication of added overhead for that. Now, how much different types of buyers are going to account for that is an interesting question, isn't it? Personally, I would very, very strongly discount for that. Now, a trade buyer might not try to discount very much for that. And somebody else who wants to kind of buy themselves a job might not discount for that at all. But the, the number of people out there who want to buy themselves a full-time job is not huge, I think. I don't quite see why somebody would want to do that. If they're retiring from corporate life, if you can sell them the idea that it's only going to take them you know, 10 hours a week to run an Amazon business, they might be interested. Put it this way, as I said to my client the other day, if you're selling an asset, and this is my view, I'm not a broker. But if you're selling any kind of asset, like a, a rental property, so I, I have a couple of um, properties that I, I rent out. So my wife and I have three buy-to-let properties between us. I was speaking to an estate agent the other day, and they said, look, if the market for your house, I've got a house at the moment that for various technical reasons cannot be let to multiple people who are not related to each other, like students. And it is a classic student-let area. And so this person said to me, look, so your house is really only attractive for sale to families. Whereas if you've got this license, which I may not be able to get, it would be attractive to landlords. And of course, when you have a bigger pool of buyers who is potentially interested in your asset, in, this, in that case, a buy-to-let property, the price is higher, right? So if you have a, a bigger pool of buyers who would be interested in your business, including those who don't want to manage it, as well as those who want to have a buy themselves a job, so the small-time buyers, and then the bigger buyers, the trade buyers then you should be able to get a higher price for it, in my opinion. Now, I'm not saying you should rush out and hire a manager or, or discount the value of your business. Go talk to a business broker or two and, and educate yourself. But I would say you've got to think about that, okay? So two, so far, we haven't even got past the revenue and the, and the SDE or the profit, right? Third point to make about percentages. Well, really for me, I don't want to buy a business with anything less than 10% pre-tax profit, but that's after the cost of management. Other people may take that differently. So if I have to put management in, I'm personally going to want 15 to 20%, depending on the size of the business, pre-tax profit. And again, the more profitable your business, I think the more somebody's likely to pay a higher multiple of that profit because 
contrary to what pretty much all of my clients insist on, revenue is not in itself a good thing. Let's think it through. So if you have more revenue, you're going to get, you're going to have to pay more tax in some jurisdictions. Do you feel you're wasting money you could be keeping in your pocket? Well, many private label Amazon sellers don't even know where they're wasting money, let alone how to stop it. But if that's you, we can help. Our new online assessment helps you identify your biggest Amazon profit killer and what to do about it. For a powerful and quick diagnosis, go to amazonprofitquiz.com. That's amazonprofitquiz.com to get your instant free analysis straight away. The VAT or sales tax, they're both related to sales, aren't they? Revenue or turnover, if you want to call it that. Secondly, more revenue implies more unit sales. More unit sales means more opportunities for refunds, more opportunities for, for issues of all kinds. More stock need to be bought, more stock need to be stored, moved, freighted, fulfilled. All of those things come with a lot of costs and risks and hard flipping work. So the less revenue you need to generate the same amount of profit, as far as I'm concerned, makes your business more valuable. So you can actually make your business unsellable, in my opinion, by simply increasing the revenue and not increasing the, pro the profit proportionately. Again, different people will be looking for different things, but a highly profitable business is always more desirable than a mediocrely profitable business and a lot less risky, so easier to sell. Really important thing to think about. While we're talking about revenue and, and profit, there's another interesting metric that I would always look at with an e-commerce business specifically, or any kind of retail business really, but particularly the, the private label type businesses that I would be most inclined to buy simply because I understand them, the sector the best. Well, how many SKUs, how many product lines does it take to generate that revenue? And more importantly, the profits. Again, people just lump it all in together, but I think that's profoundly foolish. I would not put an offering on a business without getting at least a pretty decent idea of which products are contributing to the bottom line and which ones are not contributing at all. In other words, they are actually losing money or at best break even. And again, if you have a, a balance between concentration risk, that is, you know, one product that's making half of your, your profits, not good versus a management nightmare. I, I had another client who had like two and a half thousand product lines. Most of them were not private label. I think the vast majority were reselling other people's products, which is a different issue again. But sticking to the, to the how many products does it take to generate profit question? Well, guess what? If I have to manage a thousand products to generate, you know, fairly modest EBITDA, let's say a hundred thousand a year. I'm really not interested in that because the overhead requirement of managing that is going to be colossal. Also, the chances that you've got a bunch of products that actually lose money is very high because you just haven't got the management overhead and, and head, headspace bandwidth to make sure that you're monitoring for profit properly. Um, had another client recently sold a business for seven figures or a couple of brands, actually one of which, although both had about 10 product lines each, which generated about 150,000 EBITDA per product line or SDE, I think. So he was managing himself. So as SDE, you'd have to put in management potentially. But still, that's pretty good. I mean, so like, you know, it's about £15,000 a year in profit, <clears throat> you know, without management costs, but still per product lines or allocated to product line. And that's pretty good. The gross margin would have been slightly higher than that if you're following along. So another thing to think about, right? It's, it's kind of obvious, a bit of common sense applied that if you have to manage a, a huge chunk of things in order to, you know, just make a living, then 
So if you had to manage a huge variety of products in order to make a living, not so good, right? And equally concentration risk, one product gets taken down and half your business profit disappears, also not so good. So you got to find a line in between. And if you find yourself at either extreme, your business, well, time to build a different uh, pattern into your business, isn't it? To make it really sellable. So what else there? I guess we're talking about strong cash flow, which is similar to profit. The only difference being really cash flow is what actually pays the bills. And most business buying is going to come with some form of debt attached, just as most people will buy a property involving a mortgage to a certain level of percentage of the value of the property, often quite high for buy-to-let properties, for example, rental properties. So people who buy businesses tend not to have millions of in cash in the bank, and they will tend to borrow a good percentage. And lenders will look at businesses through a particular lens. Now, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole here, but the first lens I look through is strong cash flow. So profit and cash flow can be different in an e-commerce business in the sense that you can have more stock and cash at the end of year one than you had at, at the beginning of the year. But if that hasn't translated into good positive cash flow, then that's going to make the lenders nervous. And by the way, that should make you as the business owner nervous. So this is one of the places where lenders, although they live in a slightly different universe to the rest of us in some ways, will insist on things that actually make a lot of business sense for anybody. So again, if your business is not generating free cash flow in, in large numbers and large amounts, and certainly if it isn't increasing year on year along with revenue or profits, there's something out of whack there and you need to go and sit down with your accountant and dig into what's going on. It's going to leave it at that. When you think about lendability, the other thing that lenders will look for is to lend against cash flow and they'll look to lend against assets. Now, most e-commerce businesses don't own a lot of assets like real estate or buildings or property or, or vehicles or heavy equipment. That's more like a factory type scenario or something like that. So your inventory is one of the things that people can lend against. You should just know that inventory isn't as valuable as you think it is. I mean, the, the amount that a lender will lend on inventory will depend on a few factors, but you're typically going to see 20 to 30% of the book value of the inventory being lendable. Now, that's a bit of a reality check for you as a business owner. Again, if you spent, say, £100,000 over the last year on inventory, and we're talking about exchanging the cash for the actual inventory, so we, we lose the expense of freighting it around the world, or storing it, that's lost. That's an expense, right? That's not a type of asset. But you've exchanged a hundred thousand pounds worth of cash for a hundred thousand pounds worth of actual inventory, the actual stock, the manufacturing cost, more or less. Then you may be shocked to learn that the lenders don't really think of it as being worth a hundred thousand pounds. Otherwise, they'd lend a hundred percent of that value. They'd probably lend twenty to thirty pounds on that hundred thousand pounds. So you don't necessarily need to change anything about your business based on that. But it's a bit of a reality check. So that's one of the things that I'll be looking for as well. So in conclusion, I, I hope you realize that quite a lot of the things that we're looking for are financially based. Now, one final point before we wrap up here, I was asked by a business broker the other day, if I'm looking for a business with a strong brand, which is a really good question. It sounds like a no brainer, doesn't it? But what I would say is yes and no. Really, for me, it's got to show up in the financials. And so it would show up for me in three places. First of all, the conversion rate, which is strictly a marketing metric, not a financial run, and the price, which is obviously a financial me metric, and the gross profit margin. If what you think of as a strong brand does not translate into a slight price premium above similar parts of the market, so if you're a mid-market priced uh, product, I'd expect to see a bit of a premium. If, everyone's, if the average in a marketplace is, say, $10, but you're selling at mid-market, say, $20 products around you, 
and your product is selling for $25, then you've got a bit of a price premium, which is probably based on a strong brand or, or maybe some other strong perception of your product. That's worth having. That interests me as a, as a more financially driven business buyer. If the conversion rate at a lower price point is higher than your competition, and that's hard to work out, but you can do some work with brand analytics on Amazon these days. Again, that's showing up somewhere because that will show up in the numbers. If I'm having to pay for advertising, which most of us do, if the conversion rate's higher than the money I spend per sale at TACOS or ATS, it is going to be lower, right? And then finally, the gross margin. If you are, if it's not showing up in the gross margin, all the above has been a bit of a waste of time, right? Then if your conversion rates are good, you should get a lower advertising cost, which is great because that's one of the biggest costs for anyone in, in e-commerce, but specifically on Amazon these days. My clients are always complaining about that in the mastermind and rightly so. But then the cost of goods sold has to be proportionate. If you're paying a crazy amount of money to, to buy beautiful goods, but you're only getting a certain amount of price premium, then it could be you'd be actually worse off than somebody selling a more mediocre product they can buy cheaply and sell at a kind of average price. So in other words, if you've got a strong brand, really that will be proven to me not so much by squishy consumer perceptions as three numbers, the price you can get relative to your actual direct competition, not just anyone in your market who has a keyword that's similar, right? Direct competition. Your conversion rates relative to the category and the price points, and of course your gross profit margin on that product. So you got to know your numbers, by the way, guys. That's another thing that comes out of this. I hope if you don't know your numbers, and if you don't think in terms of numbers as well as squishier brand things and the emotional intelligence that goes with the psychology of marketing, which by the way is absolutely critical. I'm not saying that isn't important, but that's your job as the brand creator to do that. But it has to translate into numbers, otherwise the brand buyer, so any buyer of your business, will not really be able to justify to themselves or to any investors that are working with them how it works. And here's the thing as well. I was speaking to a finance broker earlier who deals with business acquisition finance. And he said, one of the ways that a deal falls out of bed is that the lenders do not put the same valuation on the business as the person who's put in the offer that the would-be buyer. And I think that's often because you know that the lenders are really hard-nosed about the valuation they put on a business. And I think that business buyers who are smart people and, and who are going to survive in the long term have to be more or less similarly aligned to that. So if you're a business builder, then by all means, passion and emotion and creativity are incredibly important. And that's what you bring to the party. But I think you have to at some point recognize that that has to show up in the finances. The finances are a trailing metric. And I'm not saying passion doesn't come first. But in the end, if you don't know what your numbers are, you're driving blind. And if your passion isn't translating into numbers, then you might be doing a great service to the world uh, in other ways, but you're not necessarily creating a great business, which is a commercial entity, i.e. it is about the money in the end. So a few thoughts from the sort of business acquisition side. I obviously have my personal take on things. There is a variety of buyers out there. And if you want to get the best price, you probably need to talk to brokers. If for some reason you haven't spoken to a broker or you don't want to bother with that and you want to go direct to the buyers, I'm happy to throw my hat in the ring there. I'm not going to give you an excessive price because based on everything we talked about, I will be commercially minded, which is to say I'm not going to give you a ridiculously low price either. Personally, I just want to buy what I think is a reasonable price for a business. And that may be lower than a business owner 
feels it is because normally it's their baby and they're attached to it and it feels very valuable to them. And that makes sense emotionally as well. So this is the dance we're all involved in, guys. So it's a, it's a fascinating business, psychologically and financially, which I guess is why I'm looking forward to doing deal making as more of my main focus, because I like both sides very much, very interested in, in psychology, very interested in finance and in the bigger picture of how this stuff works. I'm no bookkeeper, but you get the idea. So anyway, if you do want me to consider your business for sale, I'm looking for businesses between one and five million pounds or dollars or euros in revenue initially based in the UK that sell on Amazon and are private label or custom products and I'm fairly agnostic about sector, but the numbers matter to me and I think they will to other buyers as well. If that's you, then reach out to me on my email. It's probably easiest, michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L at amazingfba.com. Other than that, I hope this has been a useful few insights for you and made you think as an owner operator about how to make your business feel and be really desirable for people to buy it as well in the future. Thanks for listening. Do you feel you're wasting money you could be keeping in your pocket? Well, many private label Amazon sellers don't even know where they're wasting money, let alone how to stop it. And if that's you, we can help. Our new online assessment helps you identify your biggest Amazon profit killer and what to do about it. For a powerful and quick diagnosis, go to amazonprofitquiz.com. That's amazonprofitquiz.com to get your instant free analysis straight away. Thanks for listening to the 10K Collective podcast for six and seven figure Amazon sellers. I really hope you found the show helpful to you. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave us a quick star rating. It will take you all of 30 seconds to do it, but it does mean we can be found by and help many more e-commerce business builders. I wish you fast and profitable scaling, and I hope you enjoy the process of building your seven-figure Amazon business. Thanks very much for listening.